everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law, and we have a lot of politics and the law to talk about today. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and I am joined today by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Joe, the days have been so busy that this is our way of communicating, sadly, and we're friends off the podcast, but I'm so happy you're here, and I'm happy to talk about these basically Trump-dominated topics with you. Hello, Jessica. It's always lovely to hear from you talking about our things, talking about law and politics and things in between. I don't know about Lake Wobegon, but it was indeed a busy week in law and politics and things in between those things. We're going to talk about a judge ordering Donald Trump and his two eldest children to be deposed over Trump Organization business practices. But first, we're going to circle back on our main story from last week's episode, and that's Sarah Palin's defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. If you'd like more background and by you, I mean the listeners, set your Wayback Machine for just about a week ago, or maybe just go back and listen to last week's episode of the Passing Judgment podcast. But the basics are that the Times ran an editorial the day that a shooter injured some lawmakers at a congressional softball game in 2017. And in that editorial, the Times suggested that there could be a connection between some kinds of political speech and gun violence. Some parallels were made between a congressional map that Palin's political action committee had published that featured areas targeted to flip Republican, also targeted with crosshairs superimposed over them. And one of those districts was that of Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was shot in 2011, along with 18 other people, six of whom died. Palin filed a defamation suit against the Times, and here we are. Palin herself took the stand last week in the trial wrapped last Friday. Just three days later, on Monday of this week, the judge outright tossed the case. So, Jessica, what happened here since last week? A lot happened, and that was great background. So we know for defamation cases, what you need is a false statement of fact about another that harms their reputation, and that, because Palin is a public figure, is made with actual malice. Actual malice means that the Times acted either knowing that the statement was false or with reckless disregard of the falsity. And this case was always about whether or not Palin could reach that actual malice standard, which is a really high standard and meant to protect the press, meant to allow the press to essentially make mistakes because we're more worried about a situation where they self-censor or they fear, for instance, angry politicians bullying them and threatening them with defamation suits than we are with allowing them to make some mistakes. So in this case, it always came down to whether or not Palin could satisfy the actual malice standard. And frankly, all evidence indicates that she could not. That's what a judge said. That's what Judge Rakoff said. The interesting thing here is he made that decision, but then he still let the jury deliberate. And that's not the typical course of events. So typically he would say something like, look, I've been here during the entire trial. Uh, judges have some discretion here, particularly when it comes to this type of defamation suit. And so, no, I'm tossing this case. Palin cannot show actual malice. He did something else, which is he allowed the jury to continue to deliberate, and they ultimately reached the same conclusion. Okay, Jessica, so all that being said, what was the point in the judge allowing the jury to come to a verdict, even though he had already tossed the case? How is this a thing, procedurally speaking? 
Yeah. Why did this happen? Because he knew that there were going to be appeals. And so in this case, it was kind of a belt and suspenders approach in the sense that if the case was appealed and the Court of Appeals decided to set aside the judge's decision, uh, then the jury verdict would basically spring back to life and it would mean that you don't have to have a retrial. So he was trying to have basically a backup. In this case, the fact that the jury and the judge all came to the same conclusion indicates that it's going to be really hard for Palin on appeal. All right. So I know we talked a bunch about that threshold for actual malice on last week's show. And at this point, Palin is 0 for 2 in proving that the Times breached that threshold. Am I right on that? Uh, You are right. She didn't have much luck with the judge. She did not have any luck with the jury. And I suspect that the same will be true when and if she appeals to the Court of Appeals. The question, of course, will be after the Court of Appeals renders its judgment, which I suspect will be to uphold the judge's decision, then will she appeal to the Supreme Court? Will the Supreme Court take that case? And if they do, will they use it as a moment to reevaluate the actual malice standard? That's, frankly, that's where we could see big consequences coming out of this case. Right. So as we discussed in last week's episode, the show is not over, folks, as Jessica just said. Palin is certain to appeal, and there are much larger implications for this case when it comes to something we also, also discussed last week, which is, again, something you just said, the standard for defamation, that actual malice standard, which is derived from the decision in the 1964 New York Times, again, versus Sullivan case. That's what's really at stake here, right? That's exactly right. And I'm glad you emphasized that, which is, This case was not a hard case. It's pretty clear that Palin cannot satisfy the current standard. The question is whether or not the Supreme Court would use this as a vehicle to change that standard. We know that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas have both openly said, maybe we should think about reevaluating that standard. Um, I tend to think that this is not a good case to do that. Um, that there are other cases that are less politically charged that would have better facts, but hard to predict the Supreme Court. And they do have, you know, pretty big go big or go home energy when it comes to a lot of the cases that they're taking now. All right. And I would remind people, Judge Rakoff himself made statements that should give pause to anyone who thinks that this is a big victory for the free press. According to the Daily Beast, Rakoff on Monday said, quote, this is an example of very unfortunate editorializing on the part of the Times. And he also said that he was, quote, not at all happy to rule in favor of the Times. So as it now stands, like you said, an appeal is almost inevitably coming. And we know that at least, like you said, two conservative justices, Thomas and Gorsuch, have written about changing that Sullivan standard, which means that this Palin case may, again, like you said, roll its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And what happens at that point if that happens? So, you know, as I said, I really think the question is, are there four votes to take this particular case? So even if there are four Supreme Court justices that want to change this actual malice standard, which I'm not 100% convinced that's the case, then even if there are Again, do they want it to be this case? I think there are cases with better facts, meaning maybe a plaintiff where you feel slightly more 
sympathetic, let's say, where a plaintiff where everything's not so politically charged, and a case where it's maybe a closer call that the court might say, look, this shows that the actual malice standard is really harming individuals, even public officials. So I think that's what happens next. Now, my next question may be an impossible question to answer, but why would justices like Thomas and Gorsuch want to change this actual malice standard? It seems to me as if it would only serve to empower the already wealthy and powerful in the United States. Is this a case of constitutional originalism or is there something else at play here? So only based on my own feelings, uh, I think this is a situation where Thomas and Gorsuch feel that this allows the you know liberal media, for lack of a better term of describing it, to run amok. Now, of course, we could have a much broader conversation about the fact that some members of the media or quote unquote media have engaged in misinformation, disinformation, and even at times, I think, potentially defamatory statements, and that those reporters are not, of course, only quote unquote liberal reporters. But I think that's the perception here is that at least in the past that the standard has um, helped the, you know, again, the liberal press, however we want to phrase it, and has given them too much breathing room and not enough protection maybe for conservative individuals. I tend to think that that view breaks down, but that's part of what I suspect is happening in the background. Again, just my view about why, particularly I think Justice Thomas, who's been written about a lot in the press, might feel this way. Okay, Jessica, lastly, and before we move on to our next topic, this is as much just for me as it is for our listeners. Say Palin's case is the case that makes it in front of the Supreme Court. Say that that is the case that is going to challenge this Sullivan standard that has stood since 1964. How long might this process take to get its way through the court? Are we going to be talking about this particular case in three years on episode 8,476 of Passing Judgment? Yes, but not in three years. So if this is appealed to the Court of Appeals, which I think she will, then they will make a decision. It's very unlikely that they would take years. The case would then be appealed to the Supreme Court. Again, I suspect they won't take it. But if they do, then the earliest they could set it at this point would be for the term that begins in October 2022. I think that may not play out. I think at the soonest we might be looking at either the end of that term or the beginning of the October 2023 term, but really hard to gauge because it depends on the speed at which things happen in the Court of Appeals and you know whether or not uh, the Supreme Court kind of considers this and when and if they take it. Okay, Jessica, thank you so very much for all of that. Before we move on to our next topic, I want to take just a short little detour because another news story caught my ear as I was doing my research for the week, and that was that there was another defamation lawsuit that was tossed by another judge, a completely unrelated case in a completely unrelated situation that involved George Zimmerman. We all remember George Zimmerman was a man who fatally shot teenager Trayvon Martin in February of 2012. Zimmerman was eventually acquitted in July of 2013 under Florida stand-your-ground laws. In December of 2019, 
this is news to me. I'm not sure how I missed this. Zimmerman filed a $100 million defamation and conspiracy lawsuit against Trayvon Martin's parents. They are named Sabrina Fulton and Tracy Martin. And also, in addition to that, was against Ben Crump, who is an attorney who had represented the family as well as others. According to NBC News, the lawsuit claimed that Trayvon Martin's parents, along with that attorney, Crump, participated in the conspiracy in an effort to get charges filed against Zimmerman, then have him tried and to, quote, destroy his goodwill and reputation in the community. Zimmerman also claimed that the defendants portrayed him as a racist murderer who racially profiled Martin. So, Jessica, I'm not sure how I missed this. I'm not sure if you saw this on the, in your legal radar. But is there much to even add about this? Is just this a coincidence? This is something that's happened this week. Given the details of this case, the whole thing sounds outlandish to me. I think that's a good word for it. So the judge in this case wrote that Zimmerman failed to be able to prove his cause of action. He failed to show, quote, any fraudulent misrepresentation, which, of course, is key when we're talking about defamation. As I said just a couple minutes ago, you know, the linchpin of defamation is that there needs to be a false statement of fact. And in this case, uh, the court did not find one, I think correctly so. And that should be the end of this particular drama. But interesting, of course, that we're seeing, I think, more defamation cases. We've talked before about defamation as kind of a backdoor way to litigate some sexual assault claims. Uh, we talked about the E. Jean Carroll case uh, a while back, or Joe, you would say in the way back machine. E. Jean Carroll, a journalist who sued former President Trump for defamation because, in part, he said, I didn't meet this woman, I don't know her, and I think he said she was basically too ugly to be sexually assaulted in response to her claims that he, in fact, had sexually assaulted her. And the way to, again, try and litigate those claims once the statute of limitations has run in a civil courtroom is to file a defamation suit because you have to determine whether or not there's a false statement. All of which to say, Joe, that yeah, I think we are, at least in my mind, we're talking about defamation law maybe a little bit more than we used to. Okay, Jessica, thank you for all of your input on that. Let's move on to our next topic, Jessica. Our next story involves a person who has almost never come up in our conversations on passing judgment. He's a little-known businessman and real estate mogul who somehow parlayed those successes into a job at the White House. But Jessica, who are we kidding? We all know who I'm talking about. For better or for worse, I'm not sure we have had many episodes of passing judgment in which Donald Trump's name hasn't come up in one way or another. Given the man's inexhaustible need for attention, that's the way he likes it. But he may not like the fate that has befallen him and his two eldest children this week. In an ever-expanding investigation over alleged fraud in the valuation of various assets associated with Trump family businesses, Judge Arthur Engeron of the Supreme Court First Judicial District in New York ruled that the former president... Donald Jr. and Ivanka must appear for depositions in the next three weeks. Let's talk about how we got here and what this means. First off, Jessica, this sounds like something, but as we've learned all too many times, things that sound like something when it comes to Donald Trump oftentimes turn out to be nothing at all. But sometimes it's the other way around. So, Jessica, please help me. Which is it this time? This feels like a Schroeder's cat question. Like, what is it? Is it dead? Is it alive? Is it both? Um... Joe, I think I'll give a really short answer, which is we don't know yet, but I'm happy to talk in more detail about what happened. What we do know, of course, is that the judge said that 
former President Trump and two of his adult children, Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr., um, need to sit for depositions and that uh, former President Trump needs to turn over documents. All of this needs to happen very quickly within a matter of weeks. So we know that they're going to testify. The reason I kind of hedged on is this nothing? We also almost certainly know based on the two-hour hearing, which I watched, Joe, and uh, I don't recommend it really to anyone as must-see TV, is that we expect that they may take the Fifth Amendment. And of course, Eric Trump, another adult child of President Trump, took the Fifth Amendment uh, 500 times, over 500 times when he was called by the New York Attorney General. Oh, Lord. The microphone got hot, I imagine, just from all the friction. So, Jessica, to simplify things, the Trumps are suspected of having a sliding scale of valuation of their expensive assets depending on the context for those assets. For example, saying that property A is worth X when being used as collateral for a loan, but then turning around in a different context and saying that that same property is worth X minus a lot when being assessed for taxes on that property. Have I got that correct? That's exactly right. And of course, a reminder that the New York Attorney General is looking into potential civil liability. So these are based on potential you know, bank fraud, tax fraud, but all of this in a civil context. There is, of course, a parallel investigation that's being conducted by the uh, Manhattan District Attorney. Right. And that was going to be my next point here. We're talking about this because of an ongoing investigation by New York Attorney General Letitia James, but it also involves another investigation. So this is where you come in with your legal expertise. Can you please parse that and how that led to this week's developments? What came to a head at this point that warrants bringing the trio in? Yeah. So a couple of things happened and some of them were entirely predictable and some of them were kind of surprising. So what happens when, for instance, the New York Attorney General is investigating whether or not the Trump organization and or former President Trump or his adult children engaged in civil wrongs related to, as you said, you know, inflating the value of properties for loans and then deflating the value of properties for favorable tax treatment? What happens, of course, is that you say, come on in and talk to us under oath. So they were subpoenaed for their testimony. You also say, go ahead and give us some documents. So that's all very predictable. What also is entirely predictable here is that um, they said no. And we've seen this in so many other circumstances where the members of the Trump family have been, for lack of a better word, recalcitrant in saying, no, I'm not going to comply with this subpoena. And the somewhat unexpected development that I think pushed this into court a little bit pushed the New York Attorney General, I would say was part of her letter to the court recently, is that the Trump Organization's accounting firm, Mazars, has actually broken up with him. And they have said, we disclaim the last, I'm paraphrasing here, but we disclaim the last decade of financial documents. And they're not standing by those documents anymore. We can all draw our own conclusions as to why. But I think that makes this testimony, frankly, even more necessary and pressing. And that's really um, what brought us to that hearing, which is that um, Attorney General James and members of her office said, we need this testimony, we need these documents. And they said, no. And hence, we have the hearing. 
All right, Jessica, I love the word recalcitrant. Ten points to you for using that. (laughs) Uh, But the Trumps, unsurprisingly, are are trying to avoid showing up for these depositions. And what is their reasoning as for why they think they shouldn't have to appear? So their reasoning gets a little bit complicated, but I'm going to try and simplify it, even though I want to start, I think, at the end, which is myself, other attorneys, and clearly the judge here thought there was no legal basis for this reasoning. I think the judge's conclusion said this completely misses the mark. And so what they argued is because that Attorney General James is working with the Manhattan District Attorney on their criminal investigation, that Attorney General James's office in this civil investigation, in the civil deposition, could basically... um, get around certain protections that you would give in a criminal case and that that wasn't permissible because she was working, quote, hand in glove with the district attorney. And specifically, what they said is, look, in a in a criminal case, you might call a grand jury. And in New York, if you call a grand jury, then the witnesses are given transactional immunity. So they can't be prosecuted for what they say under oath to the grand jury. This is maybe another way of, you know, the Trump family saying, if you want to hear from us, then give us immunity. The answer to that is, of course, that there can be parallel investigations, that there are legitimate civil issues that are being investigated here. And therefore, the attorney general does not just need to say, well, I'm staying my investigation. Let's throw this to the Manhattan district attorney. And so that's really, I think, what their argument came down to. And of course, what the judge pointed out is, look, if you're worried that your clients are going to incriminate themselves when they're being questioned in the civil investigation, then they can take the Fifth Amendment. Now, the state law allows for there to be a negative inference when um, people take the Fifth Amendment, but in this civil context, but it's again, it's still an option. So that's the kind of complicated, long and winding road of uh, what their argument was. Okay, so what does Attorney General James and her team hope to learn by having these three deposed? So, I mean, the punchline, of course, is more about whether or not the Trump organization or any of these individuals did, in fact, engage in fraudulent financial activity. What they knew, when they knew it, why these valuations, I think the reporting is, you know, appear to be different and figure out whether that's enough to file a civil complaint or not. Okay, so here's the $10 million question. Do you think that any of these three will actually show up for these? So not right now. Um, They'll appeal. And then I suspect that they will be shut down on appeal because, again, what you need for this type of argument in a court of law is, of course, the law on your side, which I don't believe that they have here. So I think an appeal will be a delay tactic. Then I think they will ultimately show up just the way Eric Trump did. And I think that they will ultimately plead the fifth just the way Eric Trump did. Apparently, again, reporting is more than 500 times. (laughs) with that hot microphone. So using your word, Jessica, what ultimately happens if he or they do wind up being deposed? And as you said, any one of them takes the fifth, as is the right? Well, it means that we don't obtain information from them. So I don't know exactly what that is going to mean for the attorney general investigation or the district attorney's investigation. But of course, this is a constitutional protection and it is available to everyone and it should be, right? So 
members of the Trump family should not be above the law and they should not be below the law. The law should apply to them in an even-handed way. So I don't know how much other evidence her office has or the district attorney's office has. I don't know if that means they won't be able to file civil charges and if maybe they otherwise could have. That's a big wait and see game. Okay, so Jessica, any way you slice it, this was a week of troubling news in Trump world. You talked about this a few minutes ago on Monday. Uh, it came to light that the accounting firm long associated with the Trump Organization, now that's capital O, Trump Organization, a firm called Mazars USA, had announced that it was severing ties with the Trumps, saying that it could no longer account for the veracity of 10 years' worth of financial statements that it had done for the Trumps. And I'll say it again, taken together, it sounds like a big deal, but we've been here before with the Trump family. And forgive me for the Captain Obvious bit, but there are nearly incalculable political implications for Donald Trump when it comes to these developments. Trump himself has been and ruthless to those who opt for silence under questioning. At one point during his 2016 campaign, he openly stated that, quote, the mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Not that it particularly matters what he says. The man changes positions flippantly based on his perceived benefit of the moment. So, Jessica, I'm left with all of this. Where might this lead? I know that in the eyes of his devoted legion of fans, the man can do no wrong. And I also know that there are a few million people People who would have parties if Donald Trump wound up in bracelets. And let's remember that it's not just Donald Trump himself in the hot seat, but also Don Jr. and Ivanka. All that said, Jessica, let's, with one final question, what hues closer to reality as far as possible outcomes here? You know, this is the ultimate kind of guessing game, which I think has just become too dangerous. So, of course, you know, you said here that there are a number of different legal exposures, let's say, uh, facing the Trump family. And of course, let's remember that there are also investigations into potential voter fraud in Florida. There are many investigations here. So what happens? I honestly, I'm just going to, Joe, I'm going to punt on this one. I'm going to use a sports analogy um, and I'm going to punt and say, I have no idea. I've been watching this too long to say, I think I have a sense. As if anyone has any idea what's going to happen when it comes to reality, especially when you mix in the Trump family. And hey, congratulations. Speaking of sports metaphors and punting, Jessica, to your Los Angeles Rams for winning the Super Bowl just recently. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a big fan. I know you probably had yourself had a big party to watch the game. Am I wrong? Well, you're, I mean, you're so dead wrong on so many levels, of course. <laughs> and to Bring it down to be a little bit more serious for a second. As we are recording this episode, there's some breaking legal news that is coming across the wires, as we might say. And that is that former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter has been sentenced to two years in prison to 24 months for killing Dante Wright. And um, we know reporting from the courtroom is that the judge was actually crying um, Kim Potter, again, that former police officer, I believe will serve 16 months under Minnesota sentencing law. And um, that is an update to that case, which I know that we've talked about on past passing judgment episodes. Um, we're not always a breaking news place, but I saw that legal news and I wanted to get that to our listeners. Um, reporting again from the courtroom is that uh, the judge provided a fairly, maybe comparatively lenient sentence. This was a case in which Kim Potter had um, killed Dante Wright, um, and she thought, she said that she thought she was grabbing a taser, um, and she actually grabbed her gun. 
And this is for now the completion of that completely horrendous and tragic case. And I'm sure that we will be talking more if there's an appeal in that case. Well, Jessica, thank you very much for that update and for the rest of your insight on this week's episode. Thank you, Joe. Have a great weekend. And thank you to our listeners. You can read articles about these topics and other stories Jessica has written about at msnbc.com. You can follow Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and elsewhere at Indepday and also joearmstrong.com slash Indepday. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We hope you have a great day and a great weekend. Take care.